the good old Grateful Dead cast, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. I'm Rich Mahan with Jesse Jarno, exploring the music and legacy of the Grateful Dead for the committed and the curious. Ladies and gentlemen, continental travelers, welcome back to season five of the good old Grateful Dead cast. I'm your co-host, Rich Mahan. Thanks for coming along on this journey as we time travel across the pond to 50 years ago and tag along with the Grateful Dead on their historic Europe 72 tour. We're bringing new episodes of the Deadcast to you weekly this season. Each episode covers the shows that took place on the Europe 72 tour 50 years to the week after they happened. Visit us at our website, dead.net slash deadcast, and explore the extra materials we have for you to devour for this episode. In fact, I'm sure you've noticed we're releasing a daily dose of Europe 72 ephemera during Season 5. There's new content for you on the regular. Also at dead.net slash deadcast are all of our past episodes, and from there you can link to wherever you like to listen. Have we told you we love hearing your stories? Thanks to everyone who has contributed. A fair amount of you made it into the podcast, so thanks very much for that input. And we still want to hear from you. You want to share what Europe 72 means to you? When did you get the record? Head over to stories.dead.net and record those stories about Europe 72. We need your input. Have you checked out the Europe 72 music that's available now? July 29th brings Lyceum 1972, the Complete Recordings Limited Edition. It's a 24 LP box set with four complete shows from the tail end of the Europe 72 tour, available exclusively at dead.net. And there's a newly remastered version of the original Europe 72 release. It'll be available on CD, LP, and digitally also on July 29th. Well, here we are running down the last three shows from the Europe 72 tour that take place on the continent. Next week, we head back to England for a nice run at the Lyceum. But before we do, we've got three very cool shows to cover in Europe proper. May 13th, 1972 at the Lille Fairgrounds in Lille, France. A live broadcast radio show in Luxembourg on May 16th and a concert in Munich, West Germany, at the Congress Hall on May 18th. We'll also do a little sightseeing on our days off. Get your triptychs ready and make sure there's film in your cameras. We're ready to roll with Jesse Jarno. last week and a half of the Grateful Dead Europe 72 tour was a bit of a hodgepodge before they returned to London for the closing shows. The band played three shows in three different countries, hung out in a few others, and had a last bundle of adventures on the continent. On the 5th of May, the Dead had been supposed to play the Rotunda outside Lille. To recount what happened at the end of episode 5, though, one of the equipment trucks didn't make it, as audience member Daniel Duchesne recalled to us. The band uh, couldn't arrive in Fash because someone has put uh, sugar in the tanks of the trucks. Sabotage. 
they also announced that the band would come back in Lille at another date. So we were tired. Uh, we, we have come back home, uh, but uh, without believing too much what we, we, we heard. The band's return to Lille a week later, on the 13th of May, was a show unlike any other on a tour of already pretty memorable shows. The only proper free gig of Europe 72, it was a classic Grateful Dead joint. Roll up in the park and jam for the people. Like the near riot on their previous trip through town, pretty much everybody in the Dead family has some memories of it. The stories from Phil Lesh and Bob Weir come from the great joint interview by David Gans and Marty Martinez. If we haven't made it clear, you should totally check out David's book, This Is All a Dream We Dreamed, which we've linked to at dead.net slash deadcast. The guy hadn't bolted with the money. He just, uh, I, don't, I don't think he could, could, could get it that night to give them their money, their money back for their tickets. But he, he, uh, I think he later gave them back ah, the great. money. Because, and, and, and if he hadn't done that, we wouldn't have gone back to play. Right. And we came back about <laughs> Boy, they've two, three weeks later, we came back and, uh, and played in the park for free. Tour architect Sam Cutler. Anyway, we went back and played this concert in the middle, in a town square, right in the middle of Leo, and there's several thousand people at it. The promoter was in tears because he'd given all the money back, but he had promised that we would come back and play, and everybody was saying, wee, wee. Next uh, Saturday after that, uh, the dead came back. Uh, surprise, Saturday, uh, the, the 13th May, the concert uh, with uh, no advertising, no, no news, no, no nothing. Alan Trist of Einstein Publishing. It's a small village square. I remember, I remember the stage stood up on the end, one end and it was very open. It was a very good atmosphere because the band had, had, had returned and done what they said they were going to do. And they were playing in a small European traditional old uh, town, you know. It was kind of lovely, you know. Uh, I, I do remember that felt really good. My uh, friend Philippe told me, I don't know... Uh... How he, he managed to uh, to hear uh, that news? He told me I uh, have to come uh, this Saturday afternoon uh, to hear the concert uh, of the dead, and I, I came. This is from David Gans's 2014 interview with Rosie McGee. Much to the shock of the promoter, we actually kept our promise, and we came back. I think it was a week later, and. Uh, played a free concert in the town square of Leo where the audience was, you know, the local townspeople who had no idea what the heck was going on. They were, you know, walking their dogs and pushing their baby carts and having lunch and and whatever. And we set up a a little stage and did a gig. And uh, it was a glorious day turned out to be really great. The concert uh, donc, took place on the Champ de Mars, the Esplanade, near the town park in Lille, which is a huge place uh, which is used for uh, fireworks in the 14th uh, July, uh, the French National uh, Feast. Uh, there were uh, a little... Uh, Little crowd wait for the concert. Uh, there is uh, uh, perhaps uh, 100, 200 uh, person who uh, waits for the concert. 
after the time, uh, the crowd uh, grow. But there was very few people present at the beginning. one of the highest concerts ever that we ever did in the central marketplace of Lille for about 6,000 coal miners all standing there in their helmets with black faces and everything. It was really weird with their kind of wives and girlfriends. And, oh, what is this? These are these crazy Americans. Oh, oh, but the music is very good. The people who uh, walk around the, the stage hearing the, the, the concert stop but they didn't know what the band play. They stopped hearing the music, and uh, uh, it's, uh, it was uh, very nice uh, at, uh, at their, their ears. But they, don't, they didn't know what the Grateful Dead is, because there, there was no advertising, there was no news about this event. It was a beautiful day, too, and the, the light in France, there's nothing like it. I mean, you can, it's, it's understandable why it's produced so many great painters. And it was one of those days when we played in the park and there were working people. You know, I mean, really real French working people, you know, the kind that Van Gogh would paint again. They were, they were, there they were, sitting down in front. It was, it was wonderful. Kids, a lot of experience. kids in their strollers, their mothers walking in through the park stopped off and caught the show. It was great. Mountain Girl. It's a lovely place. My goodness, you're walking around in a French Impressionist painting, I swear to God. Oh, I'm in a Renoir, and here's everybody strolling along with me along the, along the riverbank in this gorgeous place. Lille was very special, and I hope it's still as special today as it was then. You know, it was just so green, and the park, I remember, that we were supposed to be presenting in, had these huge old trees in it, you know, with the really wide spread of the branches, you know, where the branches go out like 80 feet, you know, <laughs> these huge old trees. Just one of those places that you remember for how beautiful it was. Grateful Dead archivist and legacy manager, David Lemieux. They played on a, a, a little stage set up with the town behind them. And it was free to anybody. And you look at the people, like I, I think of France in the 70s. And I think of little old ladies bundled up in wool coats with the you know thing over their head, the, the bonnet thing, the, the scarf thing with their baguettes, you know, in a bag and maybe a bottle of wine coming over from the shops. And, oh, there's a concert. I'll stay and watch that. That's who I see in these pictures. It's not raving mad deadheads. And it also looks very, very cold. And Pigpen in particular, who was pretty ill, he only had a couple weeks left of touring with the dead. 
Pigpen was really bundled up. I don't think that cold was very good for any of them, but not him. But the whole band is bundled up. Uh, it was very cold. It was a daytime show. You know, the dead did a full show. They didn't show up and play for an hour and say, here you go. It's at least we can do. They played a full two set show with another one. There's a subtly different light shimmering through the band's plane. I feel like I hear the impressionist colors of the French countryside shining through this beautiful episode from the first jam and the other one. I took uh, some photos. I used to, to take my, uh, my camera uh, uh, during the concert. Yeah. It was a miracle to see the dead for a free concert in this place. The band, they were in great shape and happy to be here, to be uh, at, at this time, at this, uh, at this point, uh, at this space. I, I see uh, on the photo uh, uh, what how uh, Jerry Garcia uh, was happy. <laughs> uh, he smiled, but he smiles always. <laughs> but this day, uh, he plays like a saint. The concert was uh, fantastic, I say. Uh, it lasted uh, three or four hours. Since the, the concert, I am incredibly a fan of the dead, and uh, it was, uh, for me, uh, like a moment of eternity. It's a real point of my life that I never forget. We've posted a link to Daniel's photos of the Free Leal Show at dead.net slash deadcast. It's hard to know where to place the following story, but let's say it manifested during the other one. Our next guest took perhaps the longest route to Leal than anyone else present, including the band. Please welcome, from Vancouver, Canada, Greenpeace co-founder, Rod Marinin. I'm a founder of Greenpeace. Previously, we, we uh, a group of, of th- 13 of us got together and decided that we had, were fed up with uh, the amount of nuclear testing that was going on. There was a lot of radiation in the atmosphere. But they had a plan. You know, we had a group of people, and some of them were in their 50s and 40s, late 40s. And one of us said, well, I think I could get Joni Mitchell to to do a a benefit concert because she's Canadian and da-da-da. And they said, oh, wow, I never heard of her. Never heard of her. And then there's always this group of two or three people laughing their heads off in the end, uh, in the corner, because the youth were always the driving force back then. You know, they were the, the boomers. They were, they were in, even though we love the direction that some of the older people are giving us. And, but anyways, so we, we ended up getting Joni to do a concert. She brought in James Taylor and two other people. Seasons, they go round and round and the painted ponies go up and down. We're captured on a
That was Joni Mitchell and James Taylor performing The Circle Game in October 1970, released in 2009 as M. Chitka, the concert that launched Greenpeace. With the funds from the concert, it was on to the next logical step. And we were basically committing group suicide. We were sailing into a nuclear test zone because we, we just were dedicated to trying to stop the nuclear testing. And, uh, and so we just tried to sail into the test zone. We, we had, there were lots of stories that came about, but we were successful in the end because the United States stopped nuclear testing at that time. There were funds left over, and they continued their mission and decided to do so in the South Pacific. The next step, then, was to get to Paris to organize it. Well, Lil was on the way to Paris. We were hitchhiking. We had very, very little money. You were hitchhiking from Vancouver to Paris? Well, we, we hitchhiked across Canada because you're, you know, 22. And actually, back in those days, you could travel faster by hitchhiking because you would travel 24 hours a day by truck and everything, and you could sleep on the way. We got to Gander, Newfoundland, and for $125, you could get a flight from Gander, Newfoundland to London Airport. And sure, from there, Leal is on the way. We just came in and drove in and, and we're kind of exhausted, but uh, we were fine. And somebody said, oh, there's a, there's a music concert in the, the local park in Lille. And who's playing there? Oh, the Grateful Dead are playing there. Holy shit, man, that's unreal. We were traveling because we had a mission, on, and you can't go to cross borders with uh, a toke or a couple of joints or, or even any other drugs because you, you just don't want to end up in jail. I had a mission to take place, and we were, were very stone sober at the time. We originally tracked down Rod because in Rex Whaler's 2004 History of Greenpeace, Rod tells a Greenpeace-related story about seeing the dead in Leal, and that story's coming. But when we talked to him, something else came up. I haven't told this story for 50 years. It was an, an amazing, amazing situation. I've only experienced this once. Uh, I tell you, it, 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 it was shocking for me because I'm, I, I'm the type of person that likes to think that I'm in 100% control of my destiny, my fate. Uh, I'm, I'm the master of my destiny. And here I am watching this concert and I'm, I'm, I'm just locked on Jerry Garcia. And Jerry goes into one of his riffs. And I was so intense into his music. I was watching him and I was watching him. And as I watched him, my focus, 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 focus went right to his mouth because his mouth was, every time he went into a rift, his mouth was way open, like about, seemed like about three inches. And he had this black beard and then this black mouth. <laughs> and then I just, all of a sudden, I got sucked into his mouth. Holy crap. And then I'm waking up on a cold marble floor. 
I remember the first thing I remember was this was a marble floor. And I said, what, what's going on here? I finally got the stand up. And all of a sudden I was in a courtroom, but the courtroom was all marble. And there was this big, probably 20 foot long marble, big, huge throne in front of me. And there was seven people there, seven people. At that moment, I was stunned. I was in a kind of a stunned state. And I, I was trying to listen to what was going on here. I was scared to look at them because they seemed to be very powerful dudes and women too. And so I, I kind of slowly took an eye, look at through the corner of my eye and I started taking a look at what's going on. There was a big screen behind them too. And it had clouds all, all behind them, like a big flat screen TV. Back in those days, there wasn't any, <laughs> but over the years, I got to know who those people were because they, they had, they, there was various people there that I was able to deduce who they were. The first people I noticed were, they're called the Three Sisters. And in Greek mythology, there's a piece I just picked up here called the Pillars of Proverbs. The Three Sisters of Fate are a group of Greek goddesses who weave the thread of time and fate, and are assigned mortals their individual destinies at birth. But this wasn't my birth. I'm sort of there, and they were discussing my destiny and my fate. And I was totally indignant that they were discussing my fate and my destiny. And I was like, I was getting like pissed off. I was getting angry. Their names are, just so you know, Antropus, who's the inflexible, Clotho, who's the spinner, Lanchesi is the allotter. The older myths identified them as the offspring of Themis. Themis is the goddess of divine law and order. So I'm, I'm preaching this story. There's the three sisters. Now there's Themis, who's this other goddess, and Zeus. Uh, who's the Greek god of sky and lightning. And then there was two other people there, and one was Neptune and the other one was Gaia. So there were seven people that I was able to identify. And so they were discussing my fate, and I, I protested. I said, look, at, you know, uh, I, you can't talk about my fate. My, I am the master of my own destiny. I, I believe in myself. I don't need you to tell me what I'm going to do or not going to do. <laughs> I didn't was able to say all those words because uh, Zeus cut me off and told me to shut up, basically. And, and at the time, I was sort of protesting. And behind this hymn was this flat screen TV. There was this, the storms. Uh, as I was talking, the storms were getting, the clouds were getting dark and gloomy, and then lightning started flashing. And all of a sudden, I was hit by a bolt of lightning and I was back standing in front of Jerry Garcia again. And my friend who was with me at the time said, oh, 
well, I'm, I'm glad you're back. I thought you were dead there for a minute. He, and I said, well, why? He says, well, you weren't moving to the music. You were gutted like totally like a statue. And I looked at your face and I looked right at your eyes and there was no eyes. There was just whites in your eyes. You, you, were, you looked weird and, and you kind of scared the shit out of me uh, with just the whites of your eyes looking. So I guess my eyes had rolled back and yet I was looking at the stage. And human time, I don't know, if, I, I, I really don't know, but it seemed like a long time. It seemed like it could have been hours in this, this, this courtroom. And I thought, okay, I don't think I'm gonna be going into any more Grateful Dead concerts for a while. <laughs> that, was, that was too much, <laughs> but I love the music. Escaping through the lily fields, I came across into empty space. It trembled and exploded with a bust up in his plate. I got on, that's when it all began. Rod had a classic version of what's called a spontaneous visionary experience, with a huge download of information, often filled out with deep archetypes from mythology, and perhaps from beyond the knowledge of the person having the mystical experience in question. Please welcome Steve Silberman, co-author of Skeleton Key, a dictionary for deadheads, and author of Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. Here's the thing to remember. The subject of, you know, so-called mystical experiences or unitive experiences is an aspect of human cognition that has been studied a lot. Like, it's not just like something that happens at dead shows or Jerry looked at me or whatever. And in fact, just this morning, I was reading through a bunch of old studies and they generally suggest that between 30 to 60 percent of human beings who are asked this question have had some kind of experience that they felt was completely transcendent, that lifted them out of their bodies or out of their circumstances or the particular space they were in or the set of mental problems they were having and gave them a glimpse of something that was profoundly healing or transcendent or, or really weird. The ability to have what psychologists call a unitive or transcendent or mystical experience is actually just part of the human repertoire of experiences. And it comes with our neurology. Or you could say it comes with the fact that we're, you know, temporary beings in a universe with a God. You know, it depends on what your frame of reference is. One of the most interesting things, actually, uh, about those studies is that the people who had mystical experiences didn't have them necessarily within a set of references that they were going for, that they even believed in. In other words, it's possible to have a, an experience of God without believing in God. I do think that there was a thing about the community at shows that maximized the chances of having experiences like that. And it was partly because it was part of sort of deadhead lore, like it wasn't said anywhere, but it was sort of part of deadhead lore that those experiences were available at shows. So you knew that you were surrounded by people who would somehow 
understand if this happened to you. And not only that, but make it kind of okay. Put another way, the Grateful Dead brought within the message that it was cool to freak fucking freely. In Rod's case, while it was a dead show, it was only barely a deadhead crowd, but consisting mostly of French civilians. How is it that the dead who are certainly not, you know, oh, let's create a style of music that spontaneously triggers unitive and mystical, you know, no. You know, they were just like playing, you know, they wanted to play. But yet they came up with this form that both musically worked to liberate, you know, your mind in a way to go there. And also then deadheads, and this was something I was very interested in when I was writing like Skeleton Key, a dictionary for deadheads, is deadheads then improvised a container for those mystical experiences that would make them safe for everybody who was there. And everybody kind of understood what was going on. And yet it's not like the band said, this music may trigger, (laughs) you know, they just played Darkstar and then Deadheads, you know, spontaneously invented the container in the room for those experiences. Just like Rod didn't go looking for his spontaneous visionary experience, we didn't go looking for Rod's story about his spontaneous visionary experience. In researching the series, I found a reference in a book that mentioned some activists that Rod happened to make contact with at the performance, important to the next part of the Greenpeace mission. You know, when you meet certain characters, sometimes I wonder if they're actually human. (laughs) I'm 6'2", and she was taller than me. So she was about six foot three, six foot four. She had a huge black cape. And she said that I'm here to guide you through Paris. And she had a friend too, a a small Frenchman. So there was this large, and they were from uh, Ibiza and uh, very magical people. But the woman was, had a big black cape. And I remember running is like having to run to keep up with her as, as, as this black cape went up and down stairwells and around corners and everything. So she introduced me to a numerous people in Paris. I ended up going on a lecture tour and the lecture tour was called Green Politics. Rod had a pretty amazing time in France. He also crossed paths with Joni Mitchell, who passed through Paris for a few concerts a few weeks after the dead. It all reinforces a theme that I find fascinating, about the dead shows becoming a kind of open space for a variety of experiences that one doesn't necessarily associate with rock shows, including facilitating the intersection of activists in Lille, France in 1972. It was a powerful energy field, and in a way, Rod would contribute to the growing container of Grateful Dead shows. The organization he helped found, Greenpeace, would eventually become a literal fixture in the standard map of a Grateful Dead show in the late 1980s, when there would always be a Greenpeace table just outside the performance area. After the Leal show, the band's rhythm section had a date, a getaway to Monte Carlo. Somebody had gifted Bill Kreutzmann and Phil Lesh tickets to the Grand Prix in Monaco. And so, after Sam Cutler handed off the rental car, perhaps inspired by their destination, The route from Lille to the airport in Paris became a street race of their own as they hit Paris traffic. As Kreutzmann described in his memoir, It was getting down to the wire, but we were zigging and zagging our way to the airport, and we weren't talking much, because we were all really high on acid. 
so we communicated without having to say a lot out loud. Phil was a backseat navigator, a human GPS. He'd just say, next street, left, and bam, we'd careen off to the left. Next street, right. They made the flight, though as they pulled into the airport, Kreutzmann made a discovery. I reached under the driver's seat, and holy shit, I found a package under there. And holy shit, it had a big bag of cocaine and another big bag of hash in it. Though not averse to LSD and other substances, on that tour, Kreutzmann was keeping himself away from the white powders. They dumped it in a trash can as they entered the airport. In his book, Kreutzmann calls out Sam Cutler for leaving the bag there, presumably the tour's coke stash. Before we hear Sam's side of the story, let's call back to what Wiz told us about what he and Rody Sonny Heard did with all that orange sunshine LSD he got gifted in Amsterdam. So uh, I had those, and, you know, Heard said, hmm, and we were on this anti-blow campaign, so we ground, we kept a few, and we ground them up and put it in the blow stash. So it was like, okay, they can have blow, but they're going to get high, too. <laughs> this is how Sam remembers the Leal show. And for reasons which I'm not quite sure why, we all got absolutely fucking off our tits, man, out of it. And I was so high. Anyway, I found myself at, I don't know what the time was. I really don't know. But anyway, I, I had a briefcase full of money and everyone's passports. And I felt like I was kind of on Jupiter or maybe Saturn. And uh, all these French people were trying to deal with me, and I didn't have a word of French. And they finally realized I, I was one of those mad Americans from the gig in the town square. So they took me to the town square. I, God knows where I was, but it was a long walk all through these different kind of back streets. We finally reached the town square. There wasn't a soul there. No equipment. No stage, nothing. They'd all gone, man. They'd all gone the two buses that we had and put the equipment on the trucks and gone back to Paris. I'm standing there with everything. It's like, oh, my God, you know. So I had to get myself back to Paris and somehow managed to get back to Paris. Everyone was at the hotel. They were all cool. But everyone was so sweet about it, you know. No one said a word. That was how the group was dead, which made me feel intensely embarrassed. It'd have been much, much easier if everyone had gone, for fuck's sake, man, you know, what happened? Where are you? Oh, we needed money. Just nothing. Like, hey, man, okay, everything all right? These nice, you know, welcoming smiles from Garcia, which immediately, immediately makes you think, he can't possibly be really smiling. I know that he thinks I'm a cunt or whatever, you know what I mean? So that was uh, probably my most... Uh, embarrassing moment as a tour manager. I'm not sure whether I lost the band or they lost me. And from Paris to a one-night stand with the smallest in-person audience of the tour, but unquestionably the largest at-home listenership. Radio Luxembourg, the communicator. Here's the news in brief. From the resources of Britain's top Sunday newspaper. The appeal court hearing into the rail crisis dispute has been adjourned until tomorrow morning. The unions are appealing against the decision to the industrial court. The Spring Bank Holiday Pop Festival at Bardney near Lincoln is a near certainty. Now the local county council has withdrawn its opposition. Dan Blocker, known to millions as Haas in the Western Series Bonanza, has died in Hollywood at the age of 43. In motor racing, Frenchman Jean-Pierre Bertrand driving a BRM led from start to finish to win the Monaco Grand Prix. That was Radio Luxembourg, recorded just days before the dead arrived. 
The Fabulous 208, it was called in Britain, for its spot on the medium wave radio band. But that's in metric. It could be heard around 14.40 a.m. in the U.K., in Germany on the FM band, in France via long wave, and beyond that via short wave. Aiming itself from the hills of Luxembourg westward towards the U.K., it was heard likewise beyond the borders of the communist nations to the east, at least where it wasn't being jammed. Founded in 1933, Radio Luxembourg was the world's first and biggest pirate radio station, defiantly sailing the airwaves of a dozen or more nations. For people in countries with tight national control over radio, which included both England and many countries in the Eastern Bloc, Radio Luxembourg was the only way to hear lots of rock music on the radio. We are so pleased to welcome to the Deadcast, from Radio Luxembourg, the DJ who hosted the Dead's visit, Kid Jensen. My show on Radio Luxembourg, so it was sort of a mid-evening program throughout Europe, that radio station had a gazillion you know, listeners everywhere, so that was a, it was nice to garner so much interest for one of our programs, because you know, one week we'd be talking to Paul McCartney, another week we'd be talking to Grace Slick, and it was a, sort of a magazine-type program that I was hosting at the time that people would usually travel a long way to get to the Grand Duchy. Kid Jensen's dimension could be heard nightly on Radio Luxembourg. Kid Jensen still does radio, though he's David Jensen now. You can catch both Series 1 and Series 2 of David Jensen's Jazz on Jazz FM Premium. Find out more at jazzfm.com. He's also been involved with Parkinson's UK, helping people live with Parkinson's disease, and has a recent memoir titled For the Record, available from Little Wing Books. In the spring of 1972, Kid Jensen met the Grateful Dead. They had created quite a bit of mayhem about them before actually arriving in the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg. Rock Scully was the manager of both the Grateful Dead and the Beach Boys at that time. And I got to know uh, Rock Scully because he came to use it during Luxembourg doing this and doing that. And he touched bases with me and thought, how, how would I think it would go if we did a thing in Luxembourg? And I said, well, why not? This, this concert hall would be his idea for it. And they said, yes, it's kind of 1930s star deco concert hall. I don't think Rock Scully served any time as a manager for the Beach Boys, but I like that timeline. Either way, something Rock was definitely very involved with was setting up the Dead's live radio broadcasts. They'd revived the art form back home and even brought it with them to Europe. In Denmark, they gave tapes of their first concert to Danish National Radio, and during their second, participated in the first totally live Rock telecast in the country's history. Like the BBC, Radio Luxembourg had recorded studio sessions in the past, but actually live performances were something different. We talked about the parallels between the Dead and the Beach Boys, and here's one more. In May of 1972, the Beach Boys and the Dead broke the live music barrier at Radio Luxembourg, the Beach Boys a week before the Dead. Somehow, only monophonic tapes of the Beach Boys' performance seemed to survive, which is too bad, and they're so cruddy we're not even going to sample them here. Donna Jean Godshow McKay. I really enjoyed Luxembourg, which we had a little jaunt into Luxembourg. And, of course, it's a real tiny, tiny, tiny country, which is more like one of our smaller states or something. I mean, it's really tiny. But it was just so quaint. And so that that would be, to me, the epitome of European culture with Luxembourg. Just the look and the smell and everything of it was just really uniquely European. That really stuck with me that, oh, this is Europe. This is how Europe is and why it's so 
beautiful. We just walked around it. You know, there was no big deal around it. We were just there. Walking around it just gave me that sense of, oh, this is why people love Europe. Mountain girl. That was fascinating. Radio Luxembourg, as it turned out, was a um, a giant fucking antenna up on whatever high spot they had in Luxembourg, which is like not not very many high spots. It was this building, and it had all this old gear in it, you know, stuff to look at. There was a, it was partly a museum of old radio gear with these tubes and you know stuff that had miraculously survived World War II, basically. And uh, I remember getting totally fascinated by their their little museum there because it just it had all this old stuff and it was really neat. Jerry Garcia and a couple of the other guys went up to the northern part of Luxembourg just to kind of see the views and look out and see the actual system, which is it was pumping out their sound, which is second only to Radio Cairo in those days in terms of capability. And uh, that was kind of exciting seeing that down. But the, the Grateful Dead themselves loved it. They absolutely loved this part of the trip. Grateful Dead archivist and legacy manager David Lemieux. It's a theater that was designed for radio play to mic it properly so that it was an audience, but it was small. I think it was 500 people. It was designed that the, the band would play to an audience and get that energy, but it was mic'd and it was designed so that it would sound pristine to be sent out around the world. Ben Holler of The Light Crew. When we played Luxembourg at one point, the sort of wonderful, mysterious thing about that was that it was it was a radio thing and it was fortified, but it had tunnels that went out into the countryside and go for miles and miles and miles through the countryside. So people could be brought in secretly and people could be, you know, extracted secretly. So it had that kind of weird, interesting flavor to it, you know. Were there Nazis here? Were we going to find Hitler's old mustache? You know, what was going to happen? For many, Radio Luxembourg was sonic liberation. From the Grand Duchy, the Dead's music would travel well into the Eastern Bloc if the station wasn't being jammed by the Russians. We used to get lots of letters. The Polish journalist said to me uh, several years ago, the reason that people still remember you so much when you go to Poland now is that Radio Luxembourg was the sound of freedom for us, because the Soviets would jam the signal, and you always knew when they would do that, because you'd, you'd get it sort of like three beeps, beep, 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 and that means three seconds later, you're live to Poland, or Czechoslovakia, or wherever else, or was keeping those people down back in the mid-70s. I know they worked really hard to have that come out, to come off, because it was going to go, you know, basically all over the world. So they took it very seriously. The band had a whole day scheduled there for soundcheck, the only officially recorded soundcheck of the tour, included on the box set. Though the tour itinerary doesn't always line up with actual travel, possibly this is from the day before the show, May 15, 1972. It reveals the dead playing a song that wasn't in their normal repertoire just yet, though it would be within a few months, though sung by somebody else. I met her Every time I heard her draw, Southern draw, then my dream went back down to follow me to the river. When I talked and weeping with her, how to cry, 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 talk the clouds, how to cover. That was Jerry Garcia singing Johnny Cash's Big River. 
Weir had sung it over New Year's at Winterland, and it entered the band's song list permanently like that in September 72. But this oddity is pretty fun. This is from the great interview David Gans did with the late Grateful Dead manager John McIntyre for the oral history This Is All a Dream We Dreamed. We've posted a link at dead.net slash deadcast. I'm remembering it as being really, really weird. First of all, Luxembourg is a weird place. How so? It's just really strange. I mean, like, try to find a good meal there. I mean, you, you think you're in France, but then try to find a good meal. It's just kind of, and they have a, a, a language that's a construct. It wasn't a natural language, and they made it up. And what? I don't know. This, I just got weird feelings from Luxembourg. And that whole uh, RKL uh, being such a force in Europe, and, and so it's like this technological presence. So I don't remember the music specifically, but I just remember having weird feelings about the place and the whole thing. Yeah. R-K-L is the French pronunciation of R-T-L, Radio Television Luxembourg. But it was ah. called RKL because that's the way the French pronounced it. Philippe Sicard had caught both shows in Paris and scored a ticket for Luxembourg. I had worked uh, like uh, an odd job, you know, a few months earlier for um, a DJ for Radio Luxembourg. It's a Luxembourg radio station because there was a, a branch of the of the radio station in Paris. And he was the, the, the official DJ of, of, the, of the Paris branch. So I worked for him. I, I worked with him. Uh, he had a small, uh, a small store of selling re- records, you know. He used me as, a, as, a, as a, someone who worked there. I, I worked only for three or four months. It was just a month or a month and a half before the dead shows. And then Philippe ran into his boss at the Olympia Theater Dead Shows in early May. He was with the dead. He was on the um, behind the scenes with them. He, he recognized me, and I was near the the stage. And uh, he called me, and he, he gave me uh, a ticket to go uh, to see them uh, in Luxembourg. Not only to me, to other people too. That's why there were many French people who went to Luxembourg. Not that much, so many, because it was a small, very small uh, auditorium. So I was I had a free ticket. I gave some to my friends, and we went to Luxembourg. I drove with a friend of mine right. to Luxembourg, which is about 300, uh, 250 kilometers from Paris. Well, Luxembourg is a very, it's a very small country. It's the one of the smallest country in the world. It's very, it's very tiny. What about the? It was raining. I remember that raining, hard rain, raining all night. It was great to get into the the auditorium there. It was a very uh, state of the art auditorium, you know. For that at that time, it was very small. We were about four, five hundred at most. 
because it was a very small room, a very small auditorium. But it was very modern, very uh, very sophisticated. That's why they were, they played so well, and the, the sound was fantastic. It, it was a bit different from Paris, but it was very, very good. It was a very short... Um, uh, concert, a uh, short gig, because they, they had the slot. For Kid Jensen, it didn't quite unfold as planned. I was on stage with the band, getting ready to kind of see the, see the band off on uh, a gig which would eventually entail five hours. It was one of those marathons or dead concerts that was, became legendary. Anyway, that was, that was that, but suddenly I heard this, like a, like a button, or somebody was pushing, pressing something, like a, like a switchblade. Well, it might have been like a switchblade. Let's pause here and flash back to what Steve Parrish told us a few episodes ago on the topic of switchblades. We bought them everywhere we could because they were illegal in America, man. Like if somebody was fucking with somebody, you'd hear blades and everybody would flick their switchblades and fucking just that shut everybody up. I heard this click. I looked down at my knife. There wasn't just a knife anymore. There was a dagger. This um, street knife was pointing at my stomach and this guy says, who are you? I said, sorry? He said, who the fuck are you? And I said, uh, I'm Kate Jensen. This is my show. And they're going to be doing interviews and talking about what they're up to. And he said, there's only one kid on this flight. And that's me. That would be Kid Candelario telling Kid Jensen what's what. Now, presumably moments after that happened, let's send it over to 1972-era Kid Jensen on stage with the dead at the Villa Luveni. Thank you, Mark Wesley in the newsroom. This is Kid Jensen, good morning, in the Theater Hall in the Villa Luvini in Luxembourg. And for the second time in the history of Radio Luxembourg, a three-hour live broadcast tonight with one of the pioneer groups that have changed the whole course of contemporary music over their last seven years in existence. Originally a jug band in 1964, they are today rated as America's finest. To all you listeners here in the hall, good morning. On shortwave around the world, three FM stations in Germany, on the French longwave, and on the medium wave band of Great Britain, 208 meters. Radio Luxembourg welcomes the Grateful Dead! It's a condensed show. It's still a full two-set Grateful Dead show. A little bit shorter. All of the jams are a little bit shorter. The other one isn't 25 minutes. It's shorter. But it's a really well-played show. I, I feel that, the, like you said about Bickershaw, that, you know, the rap is that they blew it at the big ones. And likewise, they often, you know, they might not have been able to play it up to the level of the radio. But they, at this show, they played a show that I think anybody tuning in would be intrigued. They'd say, wow, I want to know more about this band. In fact, like the band's appearance on Danish television earlier in the tour, their slot on Radio Luxembourg was actually groundbreaking. European radio had tight restrictions on music that was actually live, which resulted in many artists recording sessions for various BBC programs. But in the spring of 1972, Radio Luxembourg offered extended performance slots to both the Beach Boys and the Grateful Dead. A few weeks later, Melody Maker in the UK ran an article titled the Dead in Luxembourg, a sign of hope. Just like at home, the dead were radio pioneers in Europe. It was supposed to be between midnight and then two, and they played a little longer, like two, about two and a half hours. And it was, uh, you probably know that, it was uh, broadcast not only 
uh, in in Luxembourg, but uh, Germany, France, England. There were some people from Luxembourg, of course, from 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 Paris, and maybe a few Germans too. Because as you yeah. know, or maybe you don't know, Luxembourg is between France and Germany. Good morning or good afternoon or whatever it is, wherever you are. Special hello to all our friends in California, where it's now four o'clock in the afternoon and sunny. They played Hamburg just before coming to Paris. So maybe they handed uh, over some uh, free tickets to Germans some Germans. At Radio Luxembourg, the dead also experienced something else they were familiar with from home, but hadn't yet encountered in Europe. Too many fans. The Luxembourg Times noted that the show had been advertised as a free concert over the airwaves, but nobody had bothered to say anything about needing a ticket if they were going to come in person. The dead's reputation for free shows clearly preceded them. It's probably closer to a scuffle than a riot, I would say. This hadn't happened to the Beach Boys. Melanie Maker reported, Because of a rather silly announcement on the French service of Luxembourg, several hundred deadheads traveled from France, thinking they would see a free concert with admission to all. They found that the station's small theater, where the recording took place, held only 350. Some were left outside. There were scuffles with two security guards, really just jobs worths. One guy in the crowd tried to climb in, fell 10 foot into the waterless moat, and suffered spinal injuries. According to the Luxembourg Times, because of the confusion around ticketing, there still ended up being empty seats inside the tiny theater, with the dead's family sitting around them on the stage. Uh, All people were sitting because uh, the same as in Paris, there was no floor for dancing. People were very... um, They were not mad like in Paris. They were just uh, uh, very relaxed. And the dead were very relaxed, too, of course, like always. And uh, it was a very great... Uh, to me, it was uh, not as great as in Paris because it was uh, not so many songs and the same, it wasn't the same uh, mood. I, I love the Luxembourg show. Again, it reminds me a little bit of a full month earlier on April 14th at Tivoli. I use this rainbow kind of metaphor, the vibe, the colors I see when I listen to it and the brightness of, of Tivoli first night. They did get some work done in Luxembourg. Sort of. Well, this child I got is a little too uh-huh. Running out of money, Lord, I need more pay. Gonna wake up in the morning, Lord, I'm gonna pack my bag. It seems that the Luxembourg version of Beat It On Down the Line made it as far as the overdubbing process for inclusion on Europe 72. On July 10th, back at Alembic, Bob Weir, Jerry Garcia, and Phil Lesh all did a round of vocals, wiping out their originals. If you've ever listened to the version of Beat It On Down the Line from Luxembourg and thought, wow, sweet harmonies, it's because they're overdubs. Going down the line, going down the line. Another moment I like is when Bob Weir dedicates a song to his sweetie, and in some accounts, inspiration for the particular song that are about to play. 
if Frankie's still listening, this one's for you. Frankie Weeder was along for most of the Europe 72 tour, so perhaps she was just listening back in Paris. Who knows? It was rainy. It was not very interesting. No, we went back uh, right away after the, after the show. We went to a bar to have a beer, and then we, 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 we rode back to Paris. The Melody Maker reported on the aftermath of the skirmish at the show. There was 50 quid's worth of damage to a door, Doubtless, seen through the eyes of many Luxembourg citizens, for whom the major spectacle in their lives has been the signing of the EEC papers there, it appeared like some riot. It's a pity these bankers, restaurant owners, and shopkeepers could not have been inside that recording theater last Thursday. To see Jerry Garcia smile and smile and smile is something on its own. Still, if you were tuned in, you must have got the picture. There's almost a visual element about live radio, you dig? We do, actually. It was a broadcast in France. So a friend of mine who couldn't come to Luxembourg recorded it on a tape. He recorded it from the radio, the radio show, because it was broadcast live, you know. So uh, the, the sound was not great, but during very many years, it was the only uh, tape I had of uh, the dead in Europe. Lots of the heads we spoke with for our episode about the UK shows were listening to. 15-year-old Richard Parkinson had seen the dead at Newcastle in April and was a big fan of Radio Luxembourg. The first one I actually owned was the Garcia first solo record, which I won on a, from a radio contest. And that was probably like a couple of months before the, uh, the concert. Uh, the Radio Luxembourg was the people I won the Garcia album from. So they used to have a, like a rock show that would be on at uh, 1 o'clock in the morning which typically you'd fall asleep just as it came on with a radio sort of plugged to your ear. And end up, you know, remember they used to have those acid batteries before they got alkaline batteries, and the acid would weep out of them when they, if you, when they ran down. So you'd fall asleep at night, wake up, and there'd be acid all over your fingers on the radio. But I heard the, uh, the show on Radio Luxembourg. Chris Jones. The other thing for UK heads is Radio Luxembourg. They did the show, and I recorded that as well. Again, it was poor. You know, Radio Luxembourg is poor receptionist, worse than actually, much worse than being there and listening to the muddy sound of it. You know, it really was was poor reception going up and down, AM recording and things, so AM broadcast. But, um, but again, that was another thing. I'd never heard on Radio Luxembourg them doing a whole show like that or a large part of it. Bill Giles. The other thing that we did get in the UK was the Radio Luxembourg. I mean, again, you know, it was like, oh, wow, you know, the Grateful Dead on the radio, fantastic, far out, as of course it was. But 208 metres medium wave, uh, and then there were like these sort of, the the sound quality, let's say, wasn't very good. And then there were these sort of blizzards of interference from Neptune or somewhere when it became execrable. In the northwest, it came in loud and clear for Richard Parkinson. Yeah, Luxembourg, for some reason, actually, actually carried, particularly that summer night. Nah, I, don't, I, would, I, wouldn't even, I didn't even know a tape recorder. And to be honest, I wouldn't have known how to tape anything. Because any tape recorder I'd ever seen at that point was the kind of one that had a microphone on it, which you'd have had to hold up to a transistor radio. Bill Giles was on it. 
I even stuck a microphone in front of my, you know, what my my radio and sort of you know, was was trying to record it. And I mean, the the recording was uh, was utterly dreadful. Chris Jones too. Well, my dad had one of those what they called stereograms then, which was one of those things, you know, and uh, uh, it, which could get the radio. And I just put the mic next to the speaker on the on the you know, or between the two speakers on the floor, probably. So it would have been pretty poor recording but yeah it was fun it was something to do when you're when you're that age and uh and someone who had no real idea about audio back then i mean i mean stereo was a new thing for most of us in britain in in, in those days i got my first stereo when i for my 21st birthday and that was secondhand kit but hey it was a dead tape that had all those new songs but it wasn't an easy listen it had tried anyway simon phillips had just recorded bickershaw a week and a half earlier he knew better than to try to make a tape of Radio Luxembourg, but did so anyway. But in the UK, we only got Radio Luxembourg in on, on the medium wave, and it fluctuated in and out. So you got all the static. So you'd have two or three minutes of really clear music, and then it would go, and then disappear, and then drift back in. So it was never usable as a tape trade, but yeah, I had it, and you know there were bits of it that were listenable. to end another day of broadcasting originating from our studios in the Villa Lavini in the city of Luxembourg, Luxembourg, Europe. We hope you've enjoyed this evening's program and that you'll join us tonight on 208 Meters in the Medium Wave Band for more music at 7.30. This is Paul Burnett on behalf of the entire staff and management of the English service of Radio Luxembourg, including DJs Kit Jensen, Dave Christian, Bob Stewart and Mark Wesley, wishing you a pleasant good evening and good morning. From Luxembourg, the band made a second pass through Heidelberg en route to Munich. Steve Parrish. The place where The Student Prince was written in Heidelberg. And then Keith Gottschow went off about that, playing and talking about all that story of The Student Prince and and Heidelberg. When it's summertime in Heidelberg, there's beauty That was Summertime in Heidelberg, from the 1924 operetta by Sigmund Romberg, based on the earlier play Old Heidelberg. Keith Godshow's father, Hal, directed a version in 1964, and it's a good bet that Keith absorbed it while playing as a teenager in the pit orchestra. I wish we had more stories from Keith on Europe 72. But if you'd like to know more, check out our Enter Keith Godshow episode from last season. And we were so stoned on acid that that day we went walking around and we were so high. We'd laid on the bus for hours and we had a couple of us had gone to a souvenir shop in Heidelberg. They had all these skulls, right? They were rubber skulls. But when you pressed on the top of them, they, they had a laugh machine in them. They'd start laughing hysterically. And so when you're high on acid and you're hearing this skull laughing your hand, everybody just laughing along with the skull. And we were pulling the batteries in and out and stopping it, and it was just hilarious. So we start walking around the town, and we come to the castle now. And on these castle, bar relief, up and down the castle, are these faces of all these people. 
And so we're looking at him and we go, well, there's a lady in waiting or something. There's a knight you know, and there's a priest and there's this. And then, wait a minute, who are these people? And they look like fools, you know, like, like fools of the kind that making faces, no mass. But you could tell from the structure of their faces and their teeth that they were fools. And so there we saw St. Dilbert. And we named him that, you know. And so St. Dilbert also represented. In southern Germany, it was very different. And I, I remember visiting that incredible castle of Ludwig or somebody up on the hill with several people. You got a sense of the old European castle builders in, 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 in that show, in, in that uh, castle in Munich. Donnergine Godshow McKay. One thing that was very important to me was being around Pigpen. When he was off stage, he was more subdued. Like when Keith and I talked with him in that hotel room in Heidelberg, Germany, almost all day, he was very subdued, but very clear and sweet. I mean, just his sweetness was something that was just, ugh, I'll never forget. So the whole fucking tour, wherever you pulled into every truck stop, wherever we tried to eat, Here's 50 motherfucking hungry, stoned hippies coming into these truck stops. They weren't ready for us. Very different than American truck stops. And so all he had ready to go was Wiener Schnitzel all throughout Germany. You know what? Can I get a hot dog? Can I get a hamburger? No, we have Wiener Schnitzel. So that's all we ate. And we were sick of it, man. Mountain girl. We did worry about the European cops and, um, uh, the drivers asked us a few times not to smoke on the bus, and, and so we'd have we'd have little stops along the way. <laughs> get off and puff, get off and puff, and and go back on again. But then I, they loosened up after a while. And, I mean, I kind of had to. So it took a little while to get all that straightened out. But it it was we had some we had some very good grass with us. For thank you, whoever whatever angel dropped that in our lap when we got there. Yeah, customs they definitely. They really liked looking us over very closely, moving through an international border for, for most of us who had never done that before. This was new, all new territory. Our tour manager handled those with considerable grace and aplomb, and he just went out there and did what he did, and everything was fine. Oh, wait a minute, except for going to Germany. I remember that we did have a little, we had a little issues going into Germany, and, and I, think, I think it cost Rock a, a couple of hundred uh, bucks there, <laughs> but it, you know, they let us through. But it took it took cash. But they didn't <laughs> like us. That was the thing. They didn't didn't like us there in Germany. They really they're coming on, and you could hear them talking. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we that all worked out. And Germany was just so different. You know, it was such a different different place to be uh, from sort of the happy the happy dance we'd been doing through England and the France. During one of the band's German tour stops, Jerry Garcia got some songwriting done. Because the song didn't emerge on stage until after the band's return home, I'm going to guess it was later in the tour. Robert Hunter had written the lyrics nearly two years earlier at the Chelsea Hotel in New York. In Europe, Garcia finally found the melody. All the years come back They melt into a dream A 
a broken angel sings from a guitar. The band debuted Stella Blue at their first show after Europe at the Hollywood Bowl on June 17th. What we just heard was from Seattle on July 21st, volume 10 of the download series. But we'll have to wait for another episode to go deeper into Stella Blue. The crew used their free time in Munich for less sensitive activities. So, of course, we had to go to a German beer hall in Munich. And <laughs> we went to the one right where the beer, where Hitler had his beer hall pushed, it's called, man. The fucking famous Munich push, man, where he tried to get the Nazi party, shove him down everybody's throat, but it backfired on him. And so here are the girls. We're there. You know, you go in the piss in a big trough with all these other drunk Germans. And then you're in this fucking place and the women are carrying these steins for man, man, these giant ones. And you're drinking really for the first year. I didn't like beer until I, I tasted German beer and English beer. Wow. I mean, at that time, there were no breweries in America like that making real beer. There was all just phony beer as i call it you know 3.2 this was real fucking strong beer and so we got pretty messed up munich is a very interesting town you know um so it felt like a modern germany uh connecting with the southern part of europe you know it's it, it was it was very good but i do remember this one journalist who i forget her name who Later visited us in in seventy four in, in, in tour in in, in London, um, but I forget what she wrote for. But she she must have been one of the press people that I was involved with. To guide us through Munich in nineteen seventy two, please welcome local head Thomas Stork, then a teenager. It's southern Germany. It's a beer town. Uh, it's uh, politically conservative, uh, but in that particular moment in history uh, was really uh, blooming up. It was the year of the Olympics. Uh, Munich was awarded the uh, Olympic Summer Games uh, in 1972, uh, uh, a few years earlier. So the the last uh, four to five years, and I was going to school in, in Schwabing, right, in uh, almost in the middle of town. Uh, everything started to be upgraded in view of the Olympics coming and uh, Munich being uh, the shop window of Germany for the world. You know, it, that was 36 years after the Olympics in Berlin, Hitler's Olympics. And now the idea was to, to present the new democratic Germany, Uh, that was part of the Western unit, part of NATO, part of the European community, and peaceful. And uh, so a lot of money flew into Munich from the state government, from the federal government. We got our subway train installed. We got a a pedestrian zone in the middle of the city where there was was, uh, cars and and buses and, and, and a lot of dirt. All of a sudden, it was wide open and and light and and and, and friendly, uh, and for the summer of the Olympics uh, or the, the whole spring uh, leading into the summer, in the Dead's Europe '72 files, there are some articles about opportunities for pop groups at the Munich Olympics, and perhaps it was in the original conception of the trip. 
they, uh, they let go of the strict German rules at that time where the shops had to close at six in the evening. Everything was closing. And on Saturdays, everything was closing at 12 noon, including, of course, record stores and everything else. And all of a sudden, you could go shopping at nine in the evening, listen to music in a head shop, uh, buy records, and meet a lot of people that you hadn't met before. Shiroko was one of those stores that uh, came up in Munich. From 1970 until it closed in 2015, Shiroko was a nerve center of the Munich music scene, selling magazine, comics, records, and more. Shiroko was uh, incubated in a in the back of a Photoshop in Schwabing, which Ermgard Weigelt led. She was the lady that uh, was responsible for a lot of people finding the music that would shape their life, if I can use the big words here, because she was really good at it. She would she would talk to people, find out their interests, and then start asking them, well, have you listened to this? You may want to listen to that. And she was the one that in, in 1972, sometime earlier, maybe in April or then March, when the tickets went on sale, told me, well, there's this band coming to the Deutsches Museum called the Grateful Dead that you may want to see, that they may be in your pocket. Irmgard Weigelt's store had become a home for local psychedelic bands. She, I think she actually managed uh, uh, Amandul for a, for a bit. Amandul 2, the title track of their 1969 album, Phallus Die. We had a, a hippie scene in Munich, obviously. There, there's the infamous story of one of the more prominent communes, uh, which uh, also had ties to the Amandul group, sort of hijacked Peter Green a, a couple of years earlier uh, and put him on acid, and he never recovered. So the story goes. Uh, and those were members of this of the so-called highfish commune, and there were a bunch of those, and 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 either living in big old flats in Schwabing or by that time having moved out to the country somewhere. Uh, I think Amandul were they were living out in the country, uh, and they split into two groups uh, at some point. I sort of knew it marginally because all those guys were again. I was sixteen. And the duels were in their early mid-twenties. Uh, so that was like hippie aristocracy. Amandul 1 and the slightly slicker Amandul 2 were homegrown bands of the Munich commune scene and oddball entries into the already odd world of Kosmisch music that we discussed in our West Germany episode. The late Peter Leopold was drummer in the original Amandul and the early iteration of Amandul 2. Gerhard Ruhl, Ungard's son, who owned Shiroko later, remember that Peter Leopold regularly sat in the imitation leather beanbag and scrutinized every customer, squinting over his glasses and asking, do you like the dead?
Something else happened around this point in the tour, which we'll acknowledge here. There are no known photographs of the Dead's gig in Luxembourg on May 16th. There are, however, photographs of the Dead in Munich two days later. In the Munich photos, Jerry Garcia's Stratocaster has a new sticker on the pick guard that wasn't there when the Dead played in Lille. A very hungry alligator with a fork and knife and bib. It was a real particular favorite of mine, a Stratocaster, which was given to him by Graham Nash. Because when I was on the first tour away from everybody with Jerry at Hooterall with Howard Wales, we were up in uh, upstate New York in the winter, and, and that guitar just completely fell apart on the first note Jerry played. And so I had put this other plate on there, a Masonite plate, to replace what cracked from the cold weather. And it was a moment between me and Jerry where he was playing and I put all the guts back in the guitar, taped them in there. It was a cool thing. So we loved that guitar. We went into the backstory of Alligator in our Black Peter episode during season one of the Deadcast, when we were joined by none other than Graham Nash. In addition to stickers on the exterior, the interior of the Stratocaster was significantly modified as well. One of the two Alembic technicians responsible for working on Alligator was Rick Turner, the guitar genius we spoke with during our Skull and Roses Side B episode and had hoped to speak with further. Alligator was this constant work in progress. Rick was a master brass worker, which we talked about last time. Alligator just kind of evolved out of that whole, let's throw a bunch of brass at it and see what happens. Earlier this year, Rick passed away suddenly, and enormous love to his family, friends, and colleagues. Our friends Tim Lynch and David Gann spoke with Rick about Alligator on the KPFA fundraising marathon in 2020. Thanks to them for this audio. Please support KPFA and or your local non-commercial radio station. Jerry brought it to us at Alembic, which was uh, at that time in San Francisco uh, over uh, on Judah Street, to, um, to, to Alembicize. And in those days, uh, we were just starting to build instruments from scratch. Uh, but modding existing instruments was, you know, that's what you did. I mean, it, a lot of that was uh, thanks to, um, to Bear, uh, who never saw a piece of equipment that he didn't think he could make better. Jerry brought it to us, and what can you do? It, it originally had... Uh, I hate to call them tremolos because they're actually vibratos. Uh, he didn't like that, so we we filled the cavity with uh, uh, polyurethane and uh, put in what I was developing as the Alembic bridge with uh, with a block of brass under it as a sustain block. And one thing led to another, and you know it, it came through our hands. I don't know, probably five or six times wow. and each time different things got added and eventually it became the first instrument that um, that we put one of the uh, Ron Wickersham designed uh, Stratoblasters into a preamp that uh, that would do two things it would allow a greater output from the instrument but it would also decouple the instrument from the cable and so all the highs that were sparkly highs that were in the pickup would make it to the amplifier. Okay. The photos show the sticker going onto the guitar in either Munich or Luxembourg. But Steve Parrish remembers the sticker arriving in a different city and provides us with the origin story. That 
was the guitar he was playing that day. We were in London and we were in this place uh, that was like a cathedral sort of. And we were in there in the afternoon. Kid was playing around with this airplane that he'd gotten in, in England that you could wind it up and it would shoot across the room and fly. So we were paying attention to that. And Jerry was always there early with us when we set up. And he was now tinkering around with the guitar. And in comes Sonny Hurd. And Hurd had been out shopping in London. And he found all these stickers. And we couldn't believe how cool they were, man. We went, wow, look at these. They, they were really beautiful. And so there was one of an alligator with a bib, a, a dinner bib on, and a knife and fork in each hand, and he's just drooling, and he's coming for dinner. And so we stuck that right on that guitar, and that guitar at that moment became the alligator. So the alligator sticker came to the guitar by way of Sonny Hurd. Muddying the waters slightly, there are photos of Kid Candelario flying a model airplane around a big cathedral-like venue during soundcheck. But they're from the Music Hall of Hamburg. Uli Toiti and Volkmar Rupp created an offline collection of dated dead photos, which we spoke about in our West Germany episode. Uli is especially engaged by the alligator mystery. Nobody ever claimed copyright to it, and nobody gets, gets any credit for, for being a designer. But we know it must be between, between Lille and uh, Munich, and it became the most famous sticker on this guitar because the guitar was named after it. One thing is for sure, the alligator is going out for a meal. Yeah, he, he yeah. has his fork and his knife ready, and he has his napkin around, so he's going out for food. This sticker has to come from a food place. I'm sure about that. When you drive from Lille to Luxembourg, which was the gig in between, you drive through Belgium. You don't drive to France. It's a short way to drive through Belgium to Luxembourg and instead to drive through France. And my take on the alligator is that it was like a, a roadside fast food place for French fries. Belgium is, is famous for French fries. You know, I can't prove it. It's just a feeling. We didn't see it in Lille. We see it in Munich. In between is Luxembourg. When you go from Lille to Luxembourg, you drive to Belgium. And Belgium is famous for French fries. And they travel by bus. They need something to eat. They stop over. They walk in. And hey, look at this. Our attempts to track down Alligator in the annals of Belgian palm-free art have so far proven unsuccessful, and there are no known photos of the Luxembourg show. But by the time the band hit Munich, Alligator was ready to bare its teeth. Here's a story about the Munich show that doesn't turn up on the tape quite as described, nor in the newspaper reviews or memories we've been able to locate. So let's say that maybe this happened during the soundcheck. It's a great story, and I have no doubt that it occurred in at least one fractalization of the Grateful Dead multiverse. Take it away, Sam Cutler. I mean, another memorable occasion was in Munich. We played in the Munich Opera House, right? This fucking building, right? Huge old building that had been there since some stupid date, you know, like 1750, and had survived the Second World War bombing of Munich and God knows what else. And we were playing there, and... Uh, there was this. Uh, there was a, a fire marshal, right, who un had the unfortunate um, characteristic of looking exactly like Adolf Hitler. He actually had a moustache that was like that, you know, like Hitler had, you know, a little kind of moustache right in the middle of it, under his nose. So we all thought this was hilarious, right? 
And his whole thing was he, he was he had to be seventy five, if not eighty. And his whole thing was uh, no one can smoke. There's no smoking. Nick, Nick, it's verboten. It's verboten. Everyone used to walk around going, it's verboten. And they're completely fucking ignoring him. And the smoking joints and everything. And the guy was getting so worked up about it. Anyway, the, the concert started. That was all good. Did a couple of numbers. And uh, Garcia decided he wanted to smoke a joint. So he gets this, he's got a joint in his pocket, you know, already rolled, you know, he ain't going to roll a joint on stage. He just pulls it out, lights it up, has a couple of totes and puts it on this ashtray on top of his amp, right? So this guy, the the fire marshal, her, her Mr. Fire Marshal, he's got a bronze helmet on that makes him look like Alexander the Great. Incredible helmet, right? Yeah. And he, and he sees all this shit going on and, and this smoke coming out of the ashtray on top of Garcia's hand. Well, he's not having this. So he takes a bucket of water, runs forward and dumps it on top of the ashtray. A whole bucket of water. Can you imagine? I mean, it's a miracle, miracle the guy wasn't killed. Anyway, there is this blinding flash. I mean, like you would not fucking believe. All the lights go out, and a third of Munich now has no electricity. A third of a city of, like, three million people. <laughs> no electricity, man, right? So then, of course, everybody in the audience pulls out their lighters. This is all, like, no smoking, no, no light, you know, no smoking, no flames. And they're all sitting there with their lighters alight, right? Chaos, chaos, right? So, yeah, eventually... After about 15 minutes of being in the dark, the emergency generators kick in and everything, and there's like at least there's a little bit of light, right? And this guy comes up to me, he goes, Hey, you're a manager? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So the, the, the manager of the building needs to see me. Emergency, like now. Okay, so I go and see the manager of the building, and he goes, uh, He says, Oh, he said, You know, somebody attacked, but it's a fire marshal. And I'm like, no, really? Terrible, you know? Oh, God, you know? And then he goes, yeah. And, and the fire marshal lost his helmet. So I'm trying not to laugh, right? This fucking brass helmet he was wearing. He said, that helmet has been in the Munich Opera House since the time of Napoleon. Yeah, right, 1812 or something, right? He says, we have to have it back, he said. It's a valuable artifact, and da 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 da. I said, "Well, I don't, you know, I don't know who's got it, but I'll do my best." You know what I mean? So I had to call all the crew to go. I know, I fucking at it. You know what I mean? Because the crew kicked his ass and stole his helmet. So I got them all together. They're all standing. I said, "Look, listen, in the interests of American-German relations, and the electricity ain't going to come back on until this happens. I've got to have the helmet back." You know, no questions asked. And it got, you know, miraculously the helmet appeared. The old bastard got the fucking helmet put on his head. And then I had a German, I had a German girl there and I was telling her to tell him exactly what I said. She refused to say it. Well, basically I told him, if you fucking do anything like that again, man, we'll fucking drag you out the back and shoot you. I don't know about fucking kick your ass. It'll be fucking worse than that. It was still more than your helmet. We'll fucking take your head off your shoulders. You know what I mean? He's an old man. I can't say this to him. So you 
didn't tell him that. As local dead freak Thomas Stork points out, the Congress Hall at Deutsch Museum was a newer venue, built after World War II, and perhaps Sam is recalling a skirmish at a more venerable institution. Or, on the other hand, Thomas also points out Phil Lesh's announcement that begins the official recording of the Munich show. We're having a few minor technical difficulties, so we know that you'll understand. Let's just say the helmet got returned. There were lots of Southern German dead fans about to see their first dead show. Mimi Jones was not one of them. After I graduated from high school and I had gone off to college and dropped out promptly after a quarter because I thought, I'm not ready for that. So, uh, and my family was living in Germany for a year. And so I um, fooled around for a bit and went over there with them. But prior to that, we used to go in high school. In fact, my mom and dad would let me go on school nights up to Winterland. Like they had no idea what was going on. I have a twin brother and he had gone with my folks and I had gone off to school. So we, so I come over there, college dropout, like, and then we, <laughs> we see that they're playing and, and we just said, Oh my God, we have to go do this. Cause this is going to be nuts. I want to say it was a weeknight because it looked like people were coming home from work. It was at, you know, it was five or so, six or so in the evening. So there were the people riding the train home or the streetcar home, and because um, they were all in their business clothes. Of course, they always look like they were in their business clothes in Germany. But anyway, uh, I remember coming on to, we, we took some purple microdot, and I remember coming on to that on the street park <laughs> with my brother and going, oh, boy, are we really doing this? I remember riding the streetcar and seeing all the people in their suits and trying not to laugh because, you know, how that goes. Maybe, you know, I don't know. Oh, we know. When, then we went in, made it into the beautiful hall. I mean, it's a, and I had been there before in the day, you know, just been there to visit and and see the museum. And so I knew what it looked like. And it, it was just, I, I just remember it was just glorious. It was so elegant. And thinking, oh, this is really pretty in here. I remember coming, arriving, having to have a beer because it was just too weird and beer was always plentiful and good there, so that was a good thing. And um, sitting in this beautiful, all-white marble little alcove that was the coffee area that where they served beer in the evening, and there were chandeliers and gold, and, you know, it's the antithesis to what Winterland was. <laughs> and so it was, and then we went in to go to the, to go in, and you, and it's all rows of chairs, and they were white chairs, and I remember looking at my brother and going, huh, (laughs) this is going to be interesting. And so, because you can't sit still when they're playing. Congress Saal in the Deutsches Museum, which was a seated hall, narrow and very long, which was unfortunate because if you were in the back, you may have had a good sound, uh, but you didn't see a lot because it was a long room. I was fortunate in, uh, that I had tickets in the fourth row, so I could see what's going on on stage. My girlfriend and I were seated pretty much center fourth row. It was like the 10th or 12th concert I saw 
And from the very beginning, I had the feeling this was different. All the other bands I've seen so far, there seemed to be an immediate wall or some sort of curtain or whatever between the band and the audience. The band was always on some sort of pedestal and usually the lead singer or maybe the guitar player was on a pedestal, on the pedestal. So it was like, it was a hierarchy. See, the star and his band, and then there's us. And with the Grateful Dead, it seemed there's five, six people walking onto the stage, taking up their instruments, joking among each other, joking among the guys in the first row. And they seem to be some of us, only a bit older, maybe. David Lemieux. Again, I really do like the Munich show a lot. It was given uh, big consideration for release on its own at one time or another. Munich has the Hamburg vibe. Yep, uh, dark. It's a dark energy. I didn't know anything about the Grateful Dead really at that point. I had one album, Garcia Solo album. That was the one. Other than that, I didn't have any Grateful Dead record. And they played one song, I think, of Garcia's album. We wouldn't sit in the chairs, and so we got up when the music was starting. We were dancing around in our little spot there, and the guys came over and said, nein, 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 <laughs> in German. They told us we had to sit down, and we just looked at them and just laughed. My brother is kind of has a firm voice, and, he's, and he just probably looked at them and said, nope, <laughs> in German. Yeah. <laughs> Nope, it's not going to happen. So it's gate me, right? So uh, it's it's not going to happen. And um, so we didn't. We stood up and danced and had a great time, as far as I recall. Other people were beginning to stand up and dance, too. And they probably realized, well, this is a lost cause because pretty soon everybody's going to be standing up. And I think we just happened to be the first people or one of the first people to get up and do what you do when the dead are playing. Those American heads always setting good examples. Three songs in, I had different, three different lead singers already. And you wouldn't know if, if the fourth guy, the, the, the freaky guy with the bass, if, the, if he wouldn't start singing a song of his own very, very soon. Gonna miss you, baby, from were just beginning to be mm, worldwide, I think. And it felt like, I felt like I was the old hand, you know, like, okay, you guys, this is what you're supposed to do. (laughs) 
This is what you're supposed to do. Because they were very formal and tapping their toes and sitting in their chairs and drinking their beers outside. You couldn't drink in the hall itself. And then they loosened up. I was fascinated. And I realized this is something else. And I had I remember I had uh, 20 marks in my pocket to go for something. I don't know. And, and in the intermission, I went out and there was a stand there, I think, from one of the local record uh, stores. And they had four or five piles of albums. What was then the Grateful Dead over they had Working Man's Dead and American Beauty and Life Dead, of course, and Skull and Roses, and maybe a couple more. And a couple T-shirts with the, uh, uh, I think, with the Skeleton and Roses uh, design. And it was a matter of either or. LPs would cost 18 marks, and the T-shirt was about the same. So I went for the record, and I didn't know what to get. And I went by the pictures, and I thought, well, graphically, Working Men's Dead looks the most interesting. So I went for that one, bought that one, carried it, held it for the remainder of the show and took it home with me. Listened to it, was uh, liked it a lot and realized this is, not, this is not what I just heard in the concert. This is an acoustic album. This is a different, a different kind of Grateful Dead. Thomas got to do some sightseeing during the set break as well. I realized there were a, long, a lot of really long hairs uh, that you wouldn't see a lot uh, in the city at that point, at least not in that concentration. During the intermission, there were a lot of people, you know, walking in the aisles, you know, with the big kaftan uh, uh, coats, like the, the Afghan stuff that, that that came over. It was a sight to see, but it was, uh, those were, I mean, uh, people you looked kind of up on and they were they looked kind of arrogantly down on you because we were like the young folk you know we were not interesting at that point and i wasn't taking any drugs at that age and like i did i didn't know how to put my finger on it then but in retrospect it seems like it was like a a a, a meeting uh, of of the conoscenti you know everybody they they all came they all uh, gathered together for that because the Grateful Dead were coming and they were like the catalyst for, for a certain scene. So everybody felt kind of drawn to it. Uh, and, and I think if I remember correctly, and I should have read it, tried to find it again, the article that appeared in the, in, in the local newspaper and the leading newspaper, maybe Gerhard Rühl quotes it at some point, was written by Rainer Langhans, who was one of the members of the commune. He was, uh, he was a boyfriend of Uschi Obermeier for a while. And Uschi, she, she was the pinup girl who also had a fling with Jagger. And I think she was good friends with Keith or the Rolling Stones in general. And, and, and she's still some sort of local icon. Uschi Obermeier and Rainier Langhans were centers of the radical Munich commune world, an underground power couple associated with Commune One, and a deep tangent we don't quite have the space for today. Rainer Langhans wrote that uh, the the review of the of the show, and I remember that he seemed to talk more about the audience uh, than about the music. My memory f- is fading at this point, but but he was he was kind of acknowledging the fact that uh, this was like a meeting uh, of him and his uh, his friends from the I don't know from the, from the country hippie of whatever. 
at least in the Rainier Langhans review I've been able to locate, he wasn't impressed by the mere rock and roll and country and blues and R&B of the first set, but was more into the second. He gave readers a German taste of the signpost to Newspace interview, of which we're all so fond. Langens doesn't mention it, but in Munich, Alligator got to play Dark Star. Welcome back, musicologist Graham Boone. Curiously, Jerry hits that dark star riff of his an octave low. And what that does is to mark a, an articulation so that they can start the next part of this great first jam. You can hear that triplet style that he uses. Da 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 da, one, two, three, one, two, three. Bill getting into the middle of it, really strong playing. What's so nice is that while Jerry's very present, he's just not dominating. Everybody is standing out. David Lemieux. It's got the uh, that kind of dark energy from Miami of uh, 1989, that big dark star in Miami, 89, where they go very deep. You know, our good friend in Portland, Mr. Completely, he was not only there, but he's also got a very good critical ear and he's very descriptive. And that Miami dark star, he, he his descriptions of it are just perfect. I wasn't there, but I've listened to it enough um, and he just paints that color. David is referring to our episode from last year, titled Infrared Roses, that delved into the dead's midi years, and the Miami 89 Dark Star in particular. That's kind of the vibe I get from the Munich show and the Dark Star itself, and it's a very long Dark Star. In the middle of an intense chromatic jam, Jerry picking sharp shards of chromatic bending notes and Phil throwing out intense feedback with those low dyads, often centering on D, but sounding like they're coming from some deep space cataclysm. Those sounds turned into incredible vibrations and rumbles out of the amplifier. Now both Keith and Phil have dropped out. And we have a duet between Jerry and Bob. Even Bill drops out. And here we have a chance to really listen to the way Bob thinks and feels his way through his guitar playing. Probably around this time, Mr. Completely's heady German forerunners were floating over the concert hall, looking down at the stage. We'll drop us back down into the middle of what tapers call the Tiger Jam, with Garcia leaning on his wah-wah pedal to create wild space growling. We are at the end of this great Tiger Jam. Still going. Super, super chromatic. Super jagged. 
everybody pitching in. And then it starts to come out. Sherry slowing it down. Kate slowing it down. Getting a little bit quieter. And then the note of D starts to emerge. Jerry starts hitting a picking riff around D. And all of a sudden Phil emerges in the key of D. And Bob. And Keith, everybody in the new home of D major. And Jerry settling down the music. distant planet at the same time feels like home. And so it was, the first Dark Star into Morning Dew, perhaps the heaviest of all dead transitions, one they'd play another half dozen times or so before their road hiatus in October 1974. Walk me out in the morning One uh, fun fact or a sad fun fact, I couldn't stay for the whole show. But uh, what was also unusual, they played longer than most bands. And I, I was uh, chaperoning my girlfriend who was underage and her father was supposed to pick her up in front of the venue. And we set a time which I thought would leave us enough time to uh, after the show have a beer somewhere and, and and talk about the show but it turned out the dead I was keeping looking at my watch and the dead were still playing and eventually said well I think we do have to go because your father will be there and, and there will be no place to park he will pick you up on the run in front of the building so we had to leave and uh, from the set list I eventually found out that we we left on the the last song uh, before the final song, I think, uh, Sing Me Back Home, we, we, we left during that. So I remember it was a slow song that, that we left during. Uh, but I think it was either uh, 11.30 or uh, approaching 12.
a sad, sweet song for a sad, sweet story. But more sweet because Thomas was now a dead freak. He did go home with a new copy of Working Man's Dead. But there was just one problem. It was missing the one song that I was that really stuck in my mind. I didn't know what it was. I just know there was this one song with sort of a, I wasn't a musician then, I didn't know a lot of music, but what, what was a descending chord sequence, four descending chords, very, very distinctive, talking about Jack Straw. And it's, it wasn't out then. So I was, after that May show, the first thing, after I didn't find a song on Working Men's Dead, I started going through the whole back catalog, buying some, borrowing some, and not finding Jack Straw because it wasn't out there. And then in November or December, uh, uh, walking through the city and walking by some other record store, the shop window, they had the Europe 72 album, which I didn't know that was coming out in the window and and a couple of days later I went back and bought it and there, there I had my jack straw. It would be a few years yet before Thomas hit the dead tape trading scene and found a copy of the Munich show. Maybe the first one actually was an audience, but the next one, uh, it was a sixth or seventh generation soundboard cassette. I went through a couple of different versions and I got as far as a, I think it was a second generation claimed to be a second generation, but I doubt it actually was. It was probably a third or fourth generation cassette of at least the second set of the Munich show, which had the Dark Star, uh, which I got from a friend in, in, in Felton in, in, in California, uh, near Santa Cruz. Uh, and I stayed at his house and uh, some late night dubbed that tape from his state-of-the-art tape deck. Everything in his house was dusty, except for his photographs and, and the tape collection. Uh, and... So I, I dubbed the tape, not even listening because we were talking or whatever. And onto my Walkman professional, what was then the state of the art tape machine. And then I remember driving back to the Bay Area to my other friends where I was staying, stopping at a foggy beach somewhere north of uh, north of Santa Cruz and listen to the tape on the, uh, for the first time, walking a foggy beach in California, listening to the Munich Dark Star, and I never heard it so clear. So that was fantastic. glance at the Europe 72 itinerary, you'll notice a five-day gap between the show in Munich on 18th of May and the opening night at the Lyceum on the 23rd of May. It wasn't an intentional gap, but it also underscores one of the only slight problems of the tour. There weren't enough gigs for Jerry Garcia. Sam Cutler. 
Jerry's one of those guys, you know, like many great musicians, but p- perhaps unique in that he wanted to play every day. You know, I mean, he couldn't play, he couldn't be asked too much. He'd play in the daytime, he'd play in the evening, but certainly every day. So you can't, you know, lump around Europe with 50 or 60 people and play every day. It just doesn't, you know, you might be able to do it nowadays, you know, with, a, a, um, you know, your own aeroplane and blah, 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 blah. But back in uh, 1972, that wasn't possible. So as it happened, you know, at the end of the tour, the only thing that Jerry was unhappy about was that he hadn't played enough. But, but from a management perspective, you know, this might be a bit cruel to say it, but in a sense, you know, you want to keep them hungry. You know, you need Jerry. It's not just, you know, just another gig. You know what I mean? It's, 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 a, gig, it's a gig that he spent three days waiting to play. And he's just, you know, itching to get out there and, you know, uh, just throw some hand grenades there, you know what I mean? And really make it happen, you know? And um, so that was one of the reasons, I think, amongst many, why... The tour was a great success musically. Mountain Girl. I think they wanted they what they, he really wanted was more rehearsal time, you know, because because that's the only way he could keep keep in shape uh, physically for for playing, you know, a full gig. Uh, he really wanted to be able to rehearse a couple hours a day, and that just wasn't on the menu. He grumbled about that. He did pretty frequently. <laughs> A tour is not in in the the in my control or the band's control. It's already all set up. You know, you can't fix it, and uh, you're stuck with whatever was laid down. You know, three months ago by somebody with the various hotel reservations, you know, the scheduling, all of that stuff. And man, you got to be there at X hour, and it's already like you know, <laughs> you know, it's like you look at it, your wristwatch all the time. I really had a great time on that tour, but. As, you know, it was just it had its it had its hurdles for us as non-performers. You know, not on the crew, not playing, not playing on stage, and just coming along. So that was that was a little odd sometimes, and to not have a role because I'm used to having a role. You know, I was the I was the tech for the uh, the acid test. I ran all the gear. I did all that stuff, and I didn't have a role in in all of this than do with a Grateful Dead world. And that was tough. I like to work, you know, I like to work. During, I would either either hang out by the back door to make sure nothing, nothing got stolen because, you know, you know, the back door, the, the band's on stage, nobody's looking at the door. So uh, I would hang out sort of backstage and, and just observe. I think I was observer. And, and if everything seemed okay, I would go sit out, I would sit out front somewhere. But um, I was a I was very critical, and I I need to keep my inner critic uh, satisfied. <laughs> I really love just you know checking, being very uh, very open to whatever they played, and super observant about who was not maybe missing that intro piece or stuff like that. And then Jerry and I would talk about it later. There wasn't much for me to be a functionary other than just coming along as, as the missus, you know. And that was fun. I wanted to just stay clear, free and clear and available to, 
to, you know, run to the store to get beer, you know, basically. That was it, or change money, you know, tiny tasks. I took on tiny tasks. The original tour contracts had actually specified two trips to Switzerland, with two gigs at to-be-determined venues between May 13th and May 16th, and another between May 20th and 24th. They were the only unspecified venues on the itinerary. We couldn't get enough enthusiasm for all the shows in Switzerland, so we went there anyway, and it was beautiful. You can't go everywhere. I mean, we didn't go to Italy. We didn't go to Spain. You know, it's only so many gigs you can put together, you know, and the travel and all that. And, the, the, you know, I mean, the fact of the matter is we could have done a lot more gigs if we had a lot less people. But it was a compromise. I'll throw some speculation into the mix here as well. In February, when the contracts were signed, Swiss promoter Claude Nobbs had recently lost his primary rock venue in Montreux when it burned down. You might know the story. If not, allow Deep Purple to fill you in. It actually takes them a moment to get to the storytelling part. So, like, fire up your smoke machines and fix yourself a drink while Deep Purple rattles your skull. We all came out Smoke on the Water, in which the Montreux Casino burned down in early December 1971. Then, just as the dead were coming through in the spring, a certain other band commandeered another likely spot, the Rialto Theater, for a few weeks of rehearsals before their own world tour. the Rolling Stone to the Rialto Theater in mid-May 1972, a video clip that was incidentally aired on the same episode of The Beat Club as The Dead. Anyway, memories are blurry. There'd be at least one Stone's Dead crossover in Switzerland, but we'll hold off on that momentarily. There were no gigs, but many memorable moments. Steve Parrish. Then, when the sun came up, we're still on the bus all night, and now we're in Switzerland, and we're in Lake Lucerne. And that's where our destination was. And we're crossing over this bridge and we pull over because there was a double rainbow over this lake, man. It was another lake in Switzerland. I don't remember the lake of it. But we crossed over this bridge that was a wrought iron bridge and we pulled the two buses over, right? And so I get out and then I, I take that iconic double rainbow that day became, I think it was Mountain Girl that saw it first and we pulled over to look at it. And those became the iconic double rainbow that was on the album and all this other stuff. But here's the fucking kicker, man. We're at the back of the 
bus. I go back there to smoke a pipe of hash, you know, I think with Alan Trist. And I look at the bridge and I go, what? I couldn't believe my eyes. The bridge was made out of wrought iron, skeletons from one end to the other, crossing this feeder part of the lake, you know, that was feeding into it. And it was made from skeletons holding on to each other's ankle and bending across like a bridge framework. And then it had a real bridge all built into it. And there's the fucking name of it. You know what it was? It was the Bridge of the Grateful Dead. And it was about the European myth that we began talking about right at that point, that if you were in the time of the Great Plague and you were wandering around Europe and there was lots of dead bodies everywhere, and if you took the time to bury a corpse that you found and give it rapid and clean it and put it to grave, then that was the Grateful Dead. They helped you from beyond and protected you and your family. And so that's the myth of the Grateful Dead. And here's the fucking bridge with a plaque on it, a plaque on it that says that. We were just couldn't believe it. Marianne Mayer's photo of the Swiss rainbow would be featured on the inside of the original Europe 72 and mimicked in Mouse and Kelly's cover art, Alan Trist. In Lucerne is a very old uh, Swiss town that is interesting because it has a lake. The Lake Lucerne has um, two covered bridges, which are medieval. One of them uh, from the 13th century covered bridge that has had a series of uh, 45 paintings under the roof that it was was still extant although I think of maybe there are only 30 or so left, but they were from the, the medieval tradition of the Danse Macabre, which is, um, and they all were pictures of skeletons dancing in various situations uh, under this bridge. Um, the Danse Macabre was uh, a medieval institution that was um, designed to, uh, to make people aware that death was always with us. It was incredibly popular, you know, where there were festivals of the Dance Macabre, there were uh, various points in all Europe, all over Europe. The fact that it was memorialized in this bridge is pretty unusual. And of course, it was very interesting to us because there's the skeleton uh, as the uh, the iconic image of the band's logos and so on. And um, I visited that bridge with, with, with Parrish and he was totally amazed. What I remember was the incredible excitement that Steve showed in, in, seeing, in seeing all these uh, pictures, you know, from, from so long ago that kind of connected by arc of history to our uh, iconic use of that image, you know. It was really great. I think Phil was on that tour with me as well, uh, with us when we went across that bridge. Here's Phil Lesh and Bob Weir from the great 1995 interview by David Gans and Marty Martinez. I remember we went, got to the Grand Hotel in Lucerne, Switzerland, <laughs> and they had been expecting an orchestra, you know, like 43-piece orchestra, you know, maybe some kind of chamber orchestra. That's what they thought we were, a musical <laughs> group, or, you know, maybe some kind of dance orchestra. Who did, how did they know? They took one look at us <laughs> and decided that uh, we that we weren't the right kind of people to stay in their hotel, but unfortunately for them, we had already paid the bill <laughs> in advance. So they, they pretty much had to let us stay there. Five-star hotel. Yeah. Très élégant. Have you seen pictures of what we looked like in 1972? Yeah. And Dennis Wiz Leonard from Blair Jackson's 2011 conversation. 
the hotel in Switzerland was a real stiff upper lip, dodgy old joint. And mm-hmm. uh, I remember like Healy had this like really, really, really hideous tie-dye shirt, and they just couldn't stand him in the lobby. I mean, it was it was it, it was ugly for a fucking hippie. Because we stayed at Lake Lucerne. Oh, my God, what a night we had there, man. Beautiful time at that place. They they came out when we pulled up. Did Mountain Girl tell you about this? When we pulled up, and she got to the bus, uh, the door opened, and here are footmen with powdered wigs, and they rolling out the red carpet to us, man. Ah, the band is here. And they took one look at Mountain Girl. And they looked at each other, and they rolled that red carpet right back up, man. So they fucking couldn't believe that here were all these hippies at the hotel. They were disgusted with us, man. At Lake Lucerne, it was all these really high-class Europeans, man. And so, you know, you hear you got these glass knobs that look like your grandmother's house, man, and and all this fig degree everywhere and all these beautiful old things. And the rooms were exquisite with balconies looking over the lake. And we had a great time there on the lake. We rented some speedboats, had a wonderful time. Donna Jean Godshow McKay. They were not expecting the Grateful Dead being who the Grateful Dead was. And from what I can remember, Rock Scully had to literally go in and and take over the place and say, look, you can't kick us out because it was an extremely swanky hotel, you know, with the clientele just being very uppity. And here, this band of weirdos, you know, come marching through their hotel and they didn't like it at all. And we almost got kicked out, but we we ended up being able to stay there, but by the skin of our teeth. Rock Scully had gone to school in Switzerland as a boy. And so he wanted to relive, to fill our minds and not think about that the gigs were blown out. And that was beautiful. And of course, Rock Scully was really familiar with that territory. And I remember being in this beautiful chalet uh, I can't remember if it was actually Austria or Switzerland, but it was somewhere in either place. And just the beauty and it was just magnificent. Yeah, the Alps or something else, just something else. No wonder people like to ski there. Switzerland was really, really fun. Rock's parents were living right around or in or around Lucerne. We met his parents, and they took us up into some mountains, the whole group. Longtime dead manager Rock Scully's stepfather, in fact, was the renowned writer and public intellectual Milton Mayer, who spent part of the 1950s at the Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt. And now, Milton Mayer. Every European knows something that no American knows. The black market. By 1972, Milton Mayer was associated with the École de Humanité in Switzerland. One of its students was a teenager named Sebi Bueller. She was already a dead fan. Born and raised in New Jersey, I listened to Alice and Steele, The Night Bird, WNEW. And then I lived in Princeton. We had a really great um, college radio station. My first stage show was in Princeton in April 71. And my friends and I, so I was a freshman in high school, we crawled underneath the stage 
and came up and sat on the speakers on the stage. And we were singing. I'm sure we're on somebody's tape somewhere. I did go to the final Fillmore East concert as a 14-year-old in New York. Uh, probably not with my parents' real permission, but I still have the poster. Um, so, so the dead were part of my life. And um, because it was 1971 and I was a freshman in high school being kind of rebellious, my parents decided to ship me overseas to this small eclectic international boarding school, about 120 students, K through 12. In February 72, I wrote to my parents and I said, there's a planned trip to London with Debbie and Lars, two teachers that I'm really interested in. And they had approved my going. So this was a group of about 10 students with two teachers on a, a spring break. It was, I think, Easter. And um, we get to London. We saw Elton John at the Roundhouse, which was amazing because we were 10 feet away on the ground. Uh, went to see Falstaff at Covent Garden Opera House. Pretty amazing. Clockwork Orange, pretty frightening. And then we went to see the Grateful Dead. And literally walking down the street, I ran into somebody I knew from New Jersey who happened to be in London. We both ran into each other again inside the Dead show. So um, pretty, pretty amazing. <laughs> My memory is we went both nights. Well, that certainly sounds like an excellent Easter vacation. April 18th. And I sent my parents a letter, all scribbled in blue ink. The Grateful Dead might play here at the Acol. Rock Scully, who is the son of Jane and Milton Mayer, Jane's son by her first marriage, is the manager of the Dead. Well, he used to go to school here. I didn't know that. And his parents have a house up the road. They're closely connected with the school. Milton gives Quaker on doctrine seminars. He's really famous. Well, Rock told Jane during his Christmas stay here that it would be really too bad if they couldn't play here during their stay in Switzerland. Well, Sonny, a girl here, told Jane, Sully's mom, about the concert we saw in London. Jane told Sonny about Rock's wanting to play here, so the school wrote a letter and we all signed it, including the headmaster, Natalie, and Armin, and Edith, who is the highest, highest at the school. I'm really excited because the dead are known for giving free concerts, and lots of people here who know rock say it will go through. Given the canceled Switzerland shows and Jerry Garcia's desire to play as much as possible, I'm actually a little surprised that a dead gig didn't manifest. I wrote to May 9th, the Grateful Dead aren't coming here. But then... I wrote this letter, and May 22nd was a Monday, and I wrote, da -da -da -da, dear family, da -da -da. Saturday afternoon, a bunch of Americans, 20 in quotes, walked down the street. Now, take it. This is a Swiss Alpine village with more cows than people and very narrow roads. So this group walked down the street by the school. It turned out to be the Grateful Dead. They had invited us to walk down to Meiringen with them, which is the town down in the valley. It was really nice. Of course, I'm not going to tell my parents what was going on. Everybody was totally high. <laughs> There's a lot of stumbling going on. I mean, no one had hiking boots on. The band was coming from a city. You know, they're, they're on tour. So the women probably had on big, clunky, funky shoes. And they could not walk the Alpine Pass. Jerry and Pigpen did not walk down with us. Bob and, you know, it just it was a magical moment. The dead had wandered around the campus, too. 
Here's what Tony Kant sent to me. Um, my parents were on the door with the dead as my father was their sole legal counsel for 35 years. They visited the ACOL with Rock and the others. Bob Weir was so impressed with the ACOL that he talked me into going there. And the other funny twist is Hans Zimmer, who won a uh, Oscar for his his uh, at, for his musical score. I mean, he's very famous. He was at the ACOL, so he was there. I don't know if he was there the weekend the dead showed up, but he was there with us. Hanging. So there's a slight Hans Zimmer got a little Grateful Dead influence in his early days. That, of course, being Ripples in the Sand, from Hans Zimmer's Oscar-winning score for Dune. And now back to Seb's letter home. They were so funny, always playing baseball. In Myringen, they boarded their buses, one with a cooker and one with a bathroom. I guess it was one with a bar and one with a bathroom. <laughs> and left for London again, and then the U.S. While walking, everyone at the bottom started playing baseball. One guy almost hit Sonny, a girl in our school. Another missed. The ball went under the railroad train. We were at the railroad station. It was so funny. They offered us stickers, but we refused because I felt like a teeny bopper, even without accepting that. I would have felt really awful. And now I wish I would accepted it. Whiz. The buses dropped us off at the top of this pass, and we hiked down a um, beautiful mountain path. And we stopped somewhere and had uh, lunch up in the mountains and then ended up down in this town, uh, not where we started, and the buses picked us up. And on the way out back to wherever we were going was the triple rainbow. Here's how Steve Parrish remembered Switzerland. So now Rock decides the next day, he's got to do something with all of us, man. So we walk. Those that wanted to, we all take a hike up from the train station which is right down in the flats up this beautiful swiss mountainside and we're walking up there and we got every experience known to your swiss there we could hear the cows lowing around us and people milking them and bells clinking in the fog on this swiss mountain and the piles of hay everywhere and the swiss misses running around and the guys with the fucking swiss uh, horns blowing them for fucking uh Ricotas or whatever they wanted to get. Even her guy popping off with a fucking automatic machine gun. We go, the Swiss Army, the Swiss Army. Everybody gets a machine gun. We're talking, we're walking up, and here come these schoolgirls, man. These uh, young 18 to 25 year old schoolgirls, barefoot in beautiful Swiss dresses. And they were tired. Could the strong American boys carry them on our backs up the hill? And we did that gladly man and we get up to the hotel now on the top of the mountain and there's a beautiful white hotel man and a beautiful uh, cafeteria we're starving and we just go laughing we go they won't have wiener schnitzel here there's no way there's wiener schnitzel man and so we get in there and we all just pile into the dining room there's no one else in there but us we take a bunch of tables and we're all happy and then in comes this waitress and she goes uh, well, somebody says, can, can I get some spaghetti? And she goes, no. Can I get a uh, steak? 
We have no steaks. What do you have? Venus schnitzel. Venus schnitzel. That's all we have and that's all we serve. Oh, no. Everybody lets out this big groan. And then everybody says, well, you know what? Just bring all the wine you got. Get out. Just We're going to get drunk and eat Venus schnitzel, man. Bring it all out here. And then she goes, this is a Christian hotel and we do not serve wine. And so everybody turned, the whole room turned and looked at Scully. And I think he ran out of the building, actually. And, went, and ran down the fucking hill. Here's what Mountain Girl remembers about the Alps, a story that could have taken place during either or both of the previous stories. I think the funnest part that was going through the Alps, because we, we all took, took, took a little dose and we're just floating. You know, it was just so floaty up there. And we got up into the into into Switzerland, you know, and we're just knocked out by Switzerland. I mean, that that really got us. Uh, Rock Scully, who was the manager at that point, uh, had us go up, 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 up the mountains to this place that he remembered because he had spent a bunch of time, I guess, going to school in Switzerland as a as a young person. And so we went up to a place called Miringen, which is basically the top of the top of where you could ever get a bus. And uh, it was it's a lunch place where you can go in and have lunch. Everybody went in and had lunch except for me and Hunter and uh, Jerry and Christy all had taken acid that day. So we had we went and we trotted right up to the fence, which is where the the big, beautiful Swiss cows were grazing. I mean, really, they're as big as tanks, I swear. And they, they each one has a bell. Each bell is a different tone. And Hunter got out his trumpet and decided he was going to serenade the cows with his trumpet way up there in the, you know, way up in the in this valley in the in the Alps. You know, high. I think we were we were went uphill a long way to get to that place. And so we're 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 laughing so hard, and Hunter's going black, black, toot toot on his trumpet, and it's echoing way down into you know you could just because you can just see for a hundred miles down these valleys from up there, and the cows would just turn around and look, and then at some point in this, I mean he was being that we just doing that a little bit. One of his toots got the cow's attention. He obviously hit the note. And they all came galloping, galloping over to the fence. They were came with just huge cows just galloping over to the fence looking at us. Like, you know, oh, you're 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 playing the magic note. We have to come over. So they were they were just wonderful. These huge brown cows and and so interested in us because I don't think they got too many visitors up there. And everybody else had lunch and kind of missed it. So that was that was our glorious moment in, in Switzerland. High on high and uh, happy, really happy. <laughs> Mr. Furtis, he uh, he ducked every picture. But um, yes, there might be some of him from up there in Switzerland uh, um, with his trumpet. Because playing the trumpet to the cows was just, it was such a riot. He would wander off from the bus, you know, and go toot, you know, and have some, I don't know. You know, Hunter was such an such a, a marvelously complex person, and you never quite knew which which of the complexities you would encounter 
The lighting crew remembers their departure from the mountain. Ben Holler. One time we were up and we got up in the Alps. We had a couple of days off. Usually when you do a European tour, it's one or two shows a day. If you look at that schedule, it was one or two show, one show, two or three days off, one show, two or three days off. It was fabulous, right? So we went up in the Alps and we had a pleasant meal. We went for a little hike in the Alps, way high up in this little village. And then we went and got in the bus. And fortunately, Candace and I got on the bus with the... I think we got in the bus for the bathroom. We always wanted to get in the bus for the bathroom. You know, you could get a drink anywhere, but, uh, you know, uh, you can't piss in the aisle. So anyway, so the other bus, all the crew got in, and they took off. They took off like a bad Where'd they go? And so we got our bus, and we have this wonderful leisurely drive down. And we get down to the valley floor. The other bus has been there for two hours, Right. The crew is standing outside, ashen white, kind of holding on to the bus or whatever. Candace Brightman. The bus was marvelous being on the bus. Uh, and one time we had this, this was really nice. I think he was a Swiss bus driver. This is a terrible thing, but somebody dosed him. And we were in Switzerland and he drove up into a mountain town in Switzerland that no bus had ever tried to get into before. Yeah. And now the people in the town were going, oh, my God. But someone had dosed the bus driver. So, so the, bus, the bus went down, you know, I mean, you know, twice as fast as we did. Ugh, poor Sven. There were four shows and one tour stop left. At least one bolo bailed on the bus and flew from Geneva to London. As Phil Lesh recalled in his memoir, Searching for the Sound, with Keith Richards in the seat next to me, we talk mostly about what a drag commercial air travel is. Thanks very much for tuning in, and huge thanks to our guests in this episode, including Sam Cutler, Steve Parrish, Donna Jean Godshill McKay, Mountain Girl, Rick Turner, Rosie McGee, Alan Trist, Candace Brightman, Ben Holler, Kid Jensen, Rod Marining, Philippe Sicard, Daniel Duchesne, Thomas Storch, Sebi Bueller, Mimi, Richard Parkinson, Chris Jones, Bill Giles, Simon Phillips, Uli Tutti, David Lemieux, Steve Silverman, and Graham Boone. Also, special thanks to David Gans and Blair Jackson for providing archival interview audio. Please don't forget to like and subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks very much. Next week, we start the four-show run at the Lyceum in London, and you know you won't want to miss those. See you there. Executive producers for the good old Grateful Dead cast, Mark Pincus and Doran Tyson. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mahan Productions and Jesse Jarno. Special thanks to David Lemieux. All rights reserved.